Good morning, Southern Hills Church family. I normally, at this point in our worship service, say it's good to be with you. Uh, and I wish we could be together. But this morning, it's good to know that all of us are focusing together at this moment on God's Word and what He wants us to hear this morning, even if we're separated uh, because of what's going on in our world right now. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this time that we can be together virtually. Uh, If we can't be together physically, we pray that you would continue to watch over us to help us always find ways to be your people in the midst of unexpected challenges and in the midst of, of uncertainty. God, we rely on you and we rely on your word. And so this morning, as we continue to focus on this upside down kingdom that Jesus calls us to be a part of, I pray that you would speak directly to each person's heart as we try our best to listen and obey. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So two men walk through the back door of a church building. The first man walks in. He's obviously familiar with the place. He's well-dressed. He's got a suit and tie on. He has a seat waiting for him near the front row. Uh, he's, he's talking to people. Everyone seems to know him. Everyone uh, is familiar with him. And we see another man slip into that same sanctuary, but just moments before worship starts. And he manages to sit on the very last chair on the very last row. And we can tell that he doesn't feel like he really belongs there. But our attention goes back to the stage because worship is starting and and people are starting to sing. And we look down and and we notice on the order of worship that this this man who's sitting near the front, he's actually going to have a part of, of leading worship that day. He's going to lead a prayer. And when he gets up to lead the prayer, he proceeds to say... A prayer. He proceeds to have a conversation with God that's unlike any prayer that I've ever heard before. He says, God, I thank you that I'm well me. You know, nothing like all of these other people around here. The thieves and the lowlifes and the cheaters and, and, and all these folks that maybe have everybody else fooled. But, but God, I'm, I'm different from them. And I know that you have to be thankful for just how different I am, how impressive I am. And if, if everybody at this church was like me, can you imagine how much better this church would be? Just a, a prayer that's that's so filled with not just confidence but arrogance, it's hard to imagine that anybody would ever say that kind of prayer out loud. And then we notice that the man sitting at the back of the sanctuary who, who barely found a place in that room of gathered believers and feels like he doesn't belong, he says a very different kind of prayer. Have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. His head's in his hands as he says it, and then he suddenly rushes out moments later. And Jesus, who tells this story to people who are listening, says, Now who do you think left that day closer to God and God's heart? The man who got up and said this prayer, full of himself, or the man who had no confidence at all? When Jesus gives his own answer to that question, he says that... That God was more interested in comforting and saving this self-aware sinner than he is in listening to the prayer of this self-justified saint. God wanted to reach out and embrace the man who knew he was broken more than he was interested in comforting the man who thought he was already doing pretty well on his own. 
one of the best things about this parable that Jesus tells. It doesn't actually happen because we know that nobody would actually pray that way out loud. But Jesus also knows that it's really easy for those of us who have any kind of real religious background to slip into that way of at least secretly thinking thoughts that line up with the words that this Pharisee speaks in his prayer. We want God to realize how much we have to offer We want other religious people to see how much we've managed to accomplish. We want a little credit. We want people to see us the way we see ourselves when it comes to our our moral track records and our ability to do the kinds of things we've promised to do in God's name. We don't ever tend to see ourselves, I think, as helpless underachievers. Instead, we want to see ourselves, when we're thinking about our relationship with God, as, as helpful overachievers. But Jesus tells us this story, and he tells us this story in this way because he believes that that way of seeing ourselves, that way of of seeing ourselves in comparison to other people, uh, in relationship to God, it's all wrong. And it's not just all wrong, it's dangerously wrong. Because we cannot step farther and farther into the kingdom of God when we're really trying our best to build a kingdom for ourselves. And it's really difficult for us to to always see and notice the difference. But Jesus wants us to see in a story like this when he's telling us a story that that he's created to to help us understand something that's really hard for us to understand on our own. He's, He's trying to get to that place inside of us where we can understand that we cannot actually follow God when we're headed in another direction. And that's exactly what's going on when we, we fool ourselves into believing that we are experiencing God's kingdom when we're actually busy building our own kingdoms. You, you can't head north while you head south. You cannot allow God to be the one who is justifying you while you're at the same time trying to use religion to justify yourself. You, you can't really believe in your own humility when you're also growing in a sense of self-pride. Those, two, those things don't go together. And what Jesus is trying to, to say in this parable is, look, there is only one main character in the story of your life, and it can either be you or it can be God. There is no way to strike some kind of balance between the two. You and I have to choose. We have to make the decision. In case we, we miss the point of his story... This one guy who's man trying to impress God and, and this other guy who's trying to reach out for God. Jesus makes the same point just a few verses later in the very same chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're talking here about Luke chapter 18. This time, it's not a parable. It's an actual account of what's going on in Jesus' life and ministry. This rich ruler comes to Jesus, and instead of saying some sort of prayer that's full of himself, he just talks to Jesus in ways that make it clear that he's impressed by himself. He says, look, um, I'm pretty much got all the bases covered when it comes to religion, you know. I, I know how to keep the rules, and, and I, I think that's got to count for something. And, and I'll, I'll jump through whatever hoops I need to jump through in order to get what I'm looking for, which is eternal life. So you tell me, Jesus, what I've got to do to get what I want. And Jesus says, well, uh, you know, I, I feel like you obviously believe that you have a lot to offer. I noticed that you, you called me good teacher when you started to greet me. Well, you know, there's only one who's good, and it's God. 
It's not me, it's not you, it's God. God is the source of all goodness. But you seem to think you've got a lot of goodness in your life, and I'm guessing that you've had enough experience. You know the commandments. You know that you're not supposed to cheat on your spouse or on anyone else's. You, you, you're not supposed to kill. You don't steal. You don't lie. You, you're supposed to honor your parents. And with a triumphant gleam in his eye, this rich ruler says, Oh yeah, I know all the commandments, and, and I've got those covered. In fact, I've been able to keep them perfectly since I was just a young boy. And seeing the man's overconfidence in his own abilities, that's plain for everybody to see. Jesus says, look, with, with all that you've done, I know it's an impressive track record that you've established for yourself, but there's one thing that you've left undone. There's one extra thing that you need to do if you're really going to get to experience life in my kingdom. You need to sell everything you have and give all the proceeds, all the profit away to those in need, and then then I believe you'll be ready to be a part of my kingdom. Luke tells us that once Jesus explains all of this to him, this rich ruler, he becomes overwhelmed with sadness because he recognizes instantly that this is a price that is far too high for him to be willing to pay. He's very rich. Luke tells us, and he just isn't ready to walk away from his wealth. He isn't ready to walk away from the visible evidence, the visible proof of all that he has accomplished. And without telling us what this man ends up ultimately deciding, Luke ends the the story there with Jesus saying, look, it's so hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's just about impossible. And yet Jesus then assures us and everyone listening that there is nothing that is truly impossible with God. Now, obviously, what Jesus asks of this rich ruler is extremely difficult. Uh, Money often has a powerful hold over many of us. But I don't actually think that this particular story in Luke chapter 18 is really focused on material greed. I think that's obviously a part of the story, but... I think it's a story that's less about material greed and it's more about personal pride. Now, it is unquestionably personal pride that comes from material wealth and they are usually connected in one way or another in our lives. But I, I, I think that, that we have to assume that this rich young ruler has, well, well, he's earned a certain reputation, right? He's seen a certain way by the, the people in his community, the people in his life. Through this mix of good fortune and hard work, he's been able to to create this aura of success and power and influence. And he's not about to walk away from all of that so that he can become some penniless follower of a homeless carpenter. His wealth and his religious track record taken together make him feel like, look, I'm above all that. I'm not starting out here. I'm advanced. Give me something that I can do that's going to help raise my profile in the kingdom, Jesus. Help, help me find a way that I can have a seat of honor in the kingdom, Jesus. I'm important in the world. I know that I deserve to be important in your kingdom. Just tell me what I've got to do. But again, Christ tries to help us understand that, that seeing ourselves as valuable self-made assets for God and God's kingdom is like trying to follow God while we're headed in the opposite direction. It's, it's like trying to go north while at the same time we're, we're trying to go south. We cannot justify ourselves 
While in the very same moment, we're, we're trying to say that we believe God is the only one who can justify us. We cannot grow in humility, while at the same time we're growing in our sense of pride and self-importance. We try to go both ways. We try to have it both ways, but we, we just can't do it. We cannot grow in our sense of our own personal brokenness, while at the same time we're just comparing ourselves to other broken people and we're being overwhelmed with our sense of gratefulness that we're not as broken as they are. And the story that I think really helps us see the connection between the two stories that we've already been experiencing this morning together, it's, it's actually a really small story. It's just three verses long, and yet I think it helps us see the connection of what's going on in chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, please open up to Luke 18. We'll start reading together in verse 15. Luke 18, starting in verse 15. People were bringing babies to Jesus so that he would bless them. When the disciples saw this, they scolded them. And then Jesus called them to him and said, Allow the little children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Nearly every time I've ever heard this text, these stories preached together, especially this one about the little children, the the preacher's always trying to do their best to point out the various aspects that children seem to naturally have, that jaded adults have lost throughout their lives. And so the, the preachers talk about they hold up virtues like innocence and unforced honesty and quick forgiveness, and then they, they explain that and they illustrate it and they apply it to our older lives, or at least they try to. And, and while I'm convinced that that's, that has to be a part of what's going on in the story, when you take it all in context, when you look at all of Luke chapter 18, and, and when you try to make yourself remember at the front end the story of this this saint and this sinner who are praying. And then you go to the end of the chapter and you, you think about this story of this rich ruler who, who talks about all that he thinks he has to offer when it comes to this moral track record that he can give to Jesus. When you think about those, both, those two stories, book ending, this little scene with Jesus asking for people to let little children come to him, we find that that the thread that's holding these three stories together has nothing to do with anybody's performance. It, it has nothing to do with anybody's personal abilities to exhibit impressive or childlike behaviors. Which means that if you take the story of Jesus loving the little children and you turn it into some sort of moralistic challenge to do or accomplish anything, even if what you're, you're telling folks that they need to try to do or accomplish is to be more childlike, you're missing the point. Jesus doesn't wait to love us until we manage to emulate the goodness we see in little children. Jesus loves us the same exact way He loves the little children because as far as he and God are concerned, we are all of us still little children. Little children who are hopelessly and will always be hopelessly in need of God in our lives. This isn't a story that calls us to do something different. It's a story that calls us to see everything about ourselves and everything we do differently. To see us, to see ourselves the way God sees us. 
This story is trying to help us see that no matter how much we think, whether it's the Pharisee or the rich ruler, right? No matter how much we think we might bring to the table, it's simply not enough. Not one of us deserves to have a place at the table when it comes to the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul says it another way in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, when he says that there is no one righteous, not even one. It doesn't matter if you're a sinner or a saint, if you're rich or you're poor, if, if you're older or younger, if you're powerful or powerless, you don't deserve a place at the table in the kingdom of God. You can't make yourself worthy of it. You just simply can't. There is no accomplishment. There's no goal you can reach. There's, there's no feat that you can, can do that will change this truth. Now, there's another truth that, that Jesus wants us to hold on to, and that is, even though you and I can't do anything to earn our way into the kingdom, we're cordially invited anyway. Not because of any goodness in our life that we may be tempted to take credit for, uh, but because of the unending goodness of God at work in our lives. He doesn't invite us to the table because we've managed to impress him with, with near-perfect morality. He doesn't invite us to the table because we're so much better than all the other people we see out there and the decisions they make and the mistakes that they make. God doesn't invite us to the table because of all the outstanding achievements that, that we might have been able to rack up on a religious resume. God doesn't invite us to the table because of anything we do. He invites us to the table because of what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. God invites us to the table because even if we have forgotten, God hasn't forgotten. You and I are invited to the table in the kingdom of God because we're his. Because we're his, his children. Because you're his daughter or you're his son. And if you aren't at the table, if you aren't at his table, he feels that absence as painfully and clearly as any parent feels it when one of their dearly loved children can't be at a special family meal. I love that Luke points out that the little children weren't just toddlers. He says that some of them were babies, infants. And I love that because I can see in my heart my 11-year-old daughter, Riley, when she was just a little baby. And I can hear again the sound of her voice when she cried out for the first time, moments after her birth. I experience again how she calmed down when I reached out to touch her cheek for that very first moment. I looked at her just seconds old, and I knew that I already loved her in a deeper way, in a different way than I had ever loved anyone before. She hadn't done anything to deserve that love. It was a love that simply came into being the very first moment she took that first breath. I didn't really decide to love her, at least that's not how it felt to me. I felt compelled to love her by an overwhelming sense that she was mine, that she belonged to me the way my own heart belongs in my chest. And as the past 11 years have gone by, that love has only grown stronger, not because of impressive things she's managed to do, and yet because of the way I love her, everything she manages to do impresses me. Everything she does and is is somehow magical to me, and I have never, and I will never, get over it. And I can see our our little Reese, who somehow is already eight years old, 
I can see her when she was still just eight months old. From the very beginning, she's been small, she's been tiny, and yet her personality has always been bigger than any room she happens to be in. And that tiny girl, she's, she's made my heart bigger than I would have ever thought possible when she came into this world. And, and I, I have pictures that I carry in my heart of what she looked like from the very beginning. And I, I remember when she was just eight months old and, and the only two teeth that she could smile with were the, the two teeth at the very bottom in the middle and the rest was gums. And every time she would smile at me, my heart would melt. Back then, Lauren and I would cheer every time she managed to wave at us. We, we clapped every time she managed to say Dada or Mama. I, I held her close as she grew and as, as she had this habit more and more of trying to plant a sloppy, wet kiss on my cheek. And, and I can't tell you how much joy those sloppy kisses would bring to me as her father. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't do, I don't do slobber. But it's different when it's your little girl. It's magic. She belongs to me the way my heart belongs in my chest. I don't love Reese because of anything impressive she's managed to do, and yet because of my love for her, everything she does impresses me. It's, it's magic. This is the way God loves us. This is the way God loves you. You're His You're his dearly beloved child, his son, his daughter, and he cannot get enough of you. And nothing you do can make God love you more. Nothing you do can make God love you less. His love for you makes you more. Because he sees every good thing you do and he celebrates it. And he, he, he sees everything about you that reminds him of himself. And the angels sing... We don't deserve to be loved like this. You and I simply do not deserve it. And yet it is the unmerited gift of God anyway. So may our lives be lived in light of that love. May our lives be lived in response of that love. And may we get to the place where we're not trying to do the right things or or be the right kinds of people because we think we have to, to to prove something to God. But may we do the right things because it's what we want to do. It's who we want to be as dearly loved children of God. May that be the identifying, defining center of who we are. Not what we've done or what we haven't done, but who God says we are before anything else. We are his. We are his dearly beloved child. And if we can make that shift take place in our hearts, if we can make the decision to define ourselves that way, it'll change everything. If if you can find the faith to see yourself always, first and foremost, as God's dearly loved child, you'll move beyond keeping the religious rules that you might have grown up fearing. And you'll move into this freedom that comes from knowing that, that no matter what you manage to do or you fail to do, you, you don't belong to this world. You don't belong to your struggles. You don't belong to your shortcomings. You don't belong to the way you feel and the moments when you realize you've made the worst mistake of your life. You don't belong to anyone or anything more than you belong to God. You belong to a God who will never let you go. And I hope that that central conviction 
will be something that you can carry inside of you this week. No matter what happens, no matter what you, you have to face, what you go through, the decisions you make, no matter what your track record is at the end of the week. I hope you know, and more than anything else, you are God's dearly loved child. And that's enough. When nothing else is enough, that's enough. We're going to sing a song together now that will help us have a sense of, of what it's like to be people of worship who hold on to this truth together.